From the Resilience Podcast number 121, I'm Cecil Ledesma recording live from Austin, Texas. It's beautiful here. It's Saturday, September 5th. Many of us have something that we'd like to change in our lives, but it can be pretty difficult to overcome addictions or strong urges. Addictions are often our way of coping with stress or other difficulties. If we get into an argument with our spouse, lose a loved one to cancer, for instance, get yelled at by our boss, we need some way to cope with stresses. Over the years, we've learned to use the addiction as a coping mechanism. So now when the stress comes up, we get strong urges to do the addiction. We can't just remove the addiction because we're still going to have stress to cope with. We need to put something healthier in its place to deal with stress in our lives. So when we try to quit an addiction and stress comes up, we need a new healthier coping mechanism. And when that urge comes up, we need to do the new coping mechanism instead of the old habit. It all makes sense when you listen to my guest today. Her name is Jennifer Fox. Jennifer is the president of Fox Vending. I met Jennifer a few years ago, and then more recently, a mutual friend of ours, Neil Swindale, who I interviewed on this podcast. Feel free to look it up. Episode 24 suggested that Jennifer would make a great guest on this podcast. Thank you, Neil. You were absolutely right. Folks, sit back and listen to Jennifer's story, and I dare you to tell me that she does not define the word passion. I looked up the word, by the way. <laughs> Merriam-Webster Dictionary calls it or says passion is intense, driving, or overmastering feeling or conviction. Jennifer Fox, welcome to the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. That was quite a nice introduction. So start. let's start at the very beginning because you have, I'm sure we can fill four hours worth of conversation <laughs> and you know it uh, but start at the very beginning where were you born where are you from family life that sort of thing uh born raised in chicago where i still live i've never left um, i'm actually the only one of my siblings who did not leave chicago um raised on the south side started working for my dad about 20 years ago, and I now reside out in the western suburbs of the city. Vending is something that, when I look at your, your, your background, um, you have a graphic design background. How did you stumble upon, or how did this, was it a business that you inherited? Your father just basically said, look, hey, you run the business now? Stumbled upon. That's an excellent way to describe it. So <laughs> when I was a kid, um, my mom would bring me to the Art Institute for Saturday morning art classes. And to be honest with you, I have a terrible, terrible memory. So I don't remember if it was my idea or her idea. But obviously, that was kind of I had an artistic bent from the time I was young. So then in high school, I did not thrive much in a lot of classes uh, in, you know, like a, a academic would not be a word that would have been described or used mm -hmm. to describe me, but art, I, I mean, I, 
I did excel in that class. And then when I went off to college right out of high school, I was not prepared for that. Um, my parents were in the middle of a divorce. My life was really kind of spiraling out of control mm -hmm. due to, you know, some traumatic events that had happened. And so I went to college, but dropped out. And, and really, let's be honest, I dropped out right before DePaul kicked me out. Um, I was on academic probation and I had no idea what I wanted to do. None. Mm -hmm. I had no direction. So I dropped out of college and that would have been, I would have been 19, I guess at the time. And then, you know, I was already living on my own working waiting tables and decided to go back to school at 23. And I decided to go back for graphic design. So that artistic side of my personality kind of was always looking for an outlet and I thrived there. Actually, I, mm -hmm. um, you know, graduated in when I was 26 in 1999 with a degree in graphic design, which of course I've done nothing with. <laughs> so I, I then I freelanced after that. I was waiting tables. Remember I was 26. So a lot of the kids I went to college with were younger and mm -hmm. were just starting out, but I had already been living on my own for almost 10 years and supporting myself. So when they were all getting jobs in the field, you know, working 15 hours a day, making no money at all, 20 grand mm -hmm. a year or whatever. I remember thinking, well, that seems terrible. Like I make that amount of money waiting tables. Why would I do that? So right. I just kept doing what I was doing and doing graphic design freelance jobs on the side. And then my dad approached me kind of out of desperation, to be honest. I mean, I think if you were here, he would tell you the same. Mm -hmm. um, out of all four of his kids, I was the last on his list of people that would have that would have gotten into his business, but he really wanted to dial back and start to think about retirement and he didn't want to sell. So he just came to me like, are you sure you don't want to get involved? And honest to God, I am very close with my dad and felt real obligated to try it because he asked. So I right. kind of did an eye roll all right, I'll give you six months, but no hard feelings if I don't like it. And that was really the deal we made because I assumed I'd hate it. And I think he probably was buying his time until my brothers came around. So we both went into it as a, all right. And that was 20 years ago, 20 years ago, six. this past May. Wow. Six months equals 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and well, how how big how big is the family, and what's the makeup? Are you the only Are you the only girl? No, in the family. No, so I have an older sister, um, and my sister is a highly driven individual who decided at a real young age that she wanted to be in the Air Force, but at like a college day and or a, a career day type thing in grammar school, she learned that if you've been treated for asthma after the age of whatever you can't be in the Air Force. And she had just gotten out of the hospital for her asthma. So with those dreams dashed, she decided she was going to get her pilot license. My dad got her a pilot, like a, a aviation class or whatever to learn how to fly as a kid, thinking it was just a whim. And she still has her pilot's license to this day. She's worked for United. She's worked for Boeing. Um, so she was never coming into the family business, in other words. So that's my older sister. And then I have okay. two younger brothers and my youngest brother, um, as you know, and we've talked about, we'll talk about more, had passed away a couple of years ago from a heroin overdose. So there's four of us total. So let's start there. Okay. Yeah. Talk about that experience. 
because that's never something that um, is ever taken lightly by any family member. And it, it tends to manifest itself later on in adult life. Yeah, so you, you, you're talking about losing Justin. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I would say probably the defining moment of my life so far, but, um, so he, Justin was just the sweetest, greatest guy who I would say probably bore the brunt of my parents, very volatile, long divorce and my mother's subsequent addiction that really spiraled out of control during that time. So now looking back, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Justin was really the youngest one caught up in that the most with the least amount of ability to escape that from, you know, with any means other than drugs. I mean, so he started pretty young, I think smoking weed and, um, and then selling drugs. And, and it, at what point, I mean, he was, he turned... 40 or would have turned 40 the March after he died and he died December 5th, 2018. So he probably started with hardcore drugs sometime in his late twenties, early thirties, I would guess. Again, I mean, with hindsight, Mm -hmm. you know, it's easy to look back and think, when was it? What could I have done more to have helped him or stopped him or, or avoided that? But anyway, um, so he he was in and out of jail, in and out of trouble, in and out of rehab, had overdosed many times before he actually died. And then December 4th, he actually had a court date for a drug dealing um, arrest that he was dealing with. And the judge ordered it to go to trial. And I was at court with him. My dad and I went to court with him and that was the last time I saw him. I, um, in fact, I remember I have a very vivid image of him in my head. He was a hugger. We're both huggers. Uh, and I don't know, you know, it, it makes me sad. It does to this day that, but we didn't hug. So we were in the courthouse. It was a work day. I had to go back to work. My office is actually right down that street from this courthouse. And he had to go down the stairs of the courthouse to see his parole officer and he the look on his face he was really upset that this case was going to go to trial because it probably meant he was going to do jail time Mm -hmm. and the look on his face like I will never get it out of my mind it just he looked at me and he shook his head in like a no you know like shaking Mm -hmm. his head no Mm -hmm. like he knew it wasn't good that it was Mm -hmm. going to trial and he walked down the stairs that was the last time I saw him alive. The next morning, I got a call from my dad that he was gone. And uh, we had to drive to Rockford, actually, to go identify his body in the hospital. Um, that, was a, that was a long two-hour drive, <laughs> for sure. And a very quiet one, I, I would assume. It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, it was. Yeah, I was numb, for sure. Because people are like, how did you drive knowing that your brother was dead. And I just, I don't know you. I was in shock, 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 but not shock. I mean, when somebody's living that kind of life, you're always expecting that call. And there's this false sense of readiness that you have 
Um, I felt the same way with my mom. Like you think you're going to be ready when they go. You, you feel like you've been anticipating it and expecting it for so long. And then it happens and you're just never really ready. So yeah, I was in shock that whole way for sure. We talked on Friday, mm-hmm. yesterday, no, Thursday. No, Thursday. I think Thursday, we talked yeah. Thursday yep. or Friday. It was Thursday, yeah. And of all the the different things that we talked about related to alcohol abuse and drug addiction and, and spiraling out of control and, and, and everything related to that, you, you know, as, as dark as some of those topics are, we also said, you know, born out of everything that this story will eventually tell us are positive qualities or, or other topics that people probably aren't even thinking of right now, but there's forgiveness and mortality and gratitude, courage, accountability, and, and, and yes, there's guilt and the blaming and anger, and then there's resilience in all this. So, you know, I, I know you were very close to Justin um, and, and how that affected you and, and, and then later on the rest of the family and then how it just, were, were people publicly talking about this in your family? Was it something that just got buried um, because it was too painful to even bring up? You know, um, when you and I talked the other day, we talked about how, you know, the saying, you're only as sick as your secret. And growing up with a mom that was an addict uh, and one that lived in shame, a lot of shame, um, we were raised, you don't talk about that stuff ever. You just don't talk about it. And I don't know at what point in my young adult life I decided that I was going to absolutely talk about it and talk about it all the time. Like it was at some point that I realized that that was going to be my saving grace is to talk about it and be open about it. It was quite the bone of contention in my mom and my relationship through my adulthood because she hated me for that, for talking about it. So when Justin passed away um, and we were all sitting around the table, you know, sorting out the services and what have you, My sister said, okay, now, you know, we all have to be on the same page about what we're going to tell people. So I think we should say that Justin died in his sleep. And I was like, what? Mm. You know, I just, it was a moment. I mean, my brother James and I just looked at each other across the table and James, I know, took a deep breath, like, just don't say a word, stay calm. And I just looked at her and I said, you know what, Julianne? I, Justin could have died in a tragic car accident on the expressway that was on the news and people would still assume that he died of an overdose. It is no secret that Justin had a massive drug problem and, you know, part of what kept him in that shame spiral was that, was the shame of it. And Justin was so much more than his drug addiction and we're not going to start, we're not going to start this chapter with a lie like that is just crazy to me. We are not lying. We are not lying. It is part of what's kept our family so sick is Mm -hmm. not being 
authentic and not talking about stuff. Like it just seems so crazy to me that we were going to tell, we were going to say that Justin died in his sleep instead of, how, how would I even say Like instead of focusing on all of the beautiful things that Justin was and the loss that it was that he was now gone, we're going to keep him in shame in his afterlife by lying about how he died instead of using this as a platform to maybe save one other person, right? We're going to lie about it. No, we're not doing that. And that was just, I mean, that was a firm, firm, no, a hard no. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and it was, so his services, my cousin, Travis is a, a would you say a minister? He's uh he did the services and he really, I wish I had, I actually wish I had it on video because it was so beautiful and he used some scriptures um, and he really tied it around with the drugs and with just keeping true to who Justin was without glossing over that major, you know, big elephant in the middle of the room that, that people tend to want to sweep under the rug. And it, I, now my the direction of my life has been to honor who he was and honor his struggles and talk about it with the intention of hopefully helping somebody else so they don't have to end up like him you know i he had so much life to live he really did um and he just was a bright light that was snuffed out way too soon by some really bad choices so Wow. You, you know, there's a there's a line in the movie in, in a movie that is a family favorite. Um, but the line, it, it's the first thing that I just my mind ju- jumped to. And the line goes like this. Don't talk to me about how he died. Talk to me about how he lived. Yeah. And And I think that's where and you talked about. I, I think shame equals stigma, right? That the, there's there's the shame part of it, and it's I, I I you you in your best capacity talk about what shame is to to your family and then to you personally what it means. Yeah. Right? So when people talk about oh he died this way he and and, and to what was the underlying reason why it was more comfortable to say he died in his sleep? Well, you know, that, that question is one for my sister, right? Because that's not what, that's not the narrative that I was going to support, but um, there's so much shame with being an addict. And I, I don't, you know, we portray, in, me included, I might add, I spent my adult life shaming my mother and my brother. Honestly, I did. Um, I'm not proud to say that. And obviously, I really try hard not to regret in life. So I can't take that back. I can definitely learn from it to not do that ever again to anyone else. But there's so much shame around addiction because of the way it's portrayed, like once an addict, that's all you are, right? That's, that's what defines you instead of all of the beautiful things in your personality. 
all the things I could have focused on with my mom and my brother that made them really beautiful humans. Once an addict, that's all people focus on. So um, I think, I don't know why I'm inclined to talk about the live a great story part right now, but after Justin passed away, I had kept seeing this advertisement for live a great story on mm-hmm. Facebook. And I, I, I'm the number one sucker. My face should be next to this in the dictionary somewhere, but number one sucker for Facebook advertising. Holy cow. Have they got my number? So I kept, (laughs) I kept seeing this live a great story, live a great story campaign. And I Mm -hmm. finally clicked on it one day and um, they sold stickers and, you know, so I, I bought stickers and that's a whole other story of why, but that, that idea of living a great story really settled into my brain and it started to grow like a seed planted in your soul right and I just started thinking I'm what a shame that my brother at 39 years old didn't get a chance to make his story great right but and my mom I mean my mom died she was 72 but man my mom was an amazing woman and before drugs took over her life um she was just filled with life she was so awesome she was that mom who literally would we would come running on a Saturday morning and decide that we all wanted to go to Great America which is our like amusement park here right Six Flags Mm -hmm. and the I grew up on a block filled with kids so we would all and I was the youngest of the group too which was the best because they all loved me um Mm -hmm. and we did we would decide we wanted to go to Great America and my mom would literally pile us all into her patchback pacer um, and take us to Great America. Like that was the kind of parent she was. She was just, she was so cool and she was go, go, go and had us in every activity and every sport and homemade meals. And just, I mean, she was like, you know, poster child for greatest mom ever. So um, she, she just drugs took over and, and her story changed to be a really sad one instead of what could have been great. And so I, I started thinking about my own life and my own story and how much shame I was living under with the kind of life I was really living. And it just gave me so much inspiration to think like, yeah, we have, we have, every one of us has a chance to live a great story. Like what kind of story do you want to be told once you're gone? Or really, like, what kind of story do you want to tell when you're alive, right? I uh-huh. mean, so we all, yes. like, I love the saying, you see it a lot. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. What sets us apart is what we do with them. I don't know if that's exactly how it goes, but that's my translation. And that is so mm-hmm. true when you really think about it. Because when you think about all the people that you admire or you look up to or that you think are successful, you know, they embody what you think is successful you think, well, that person has the same 24 hours as I do. Why not me? Like, why can't I have a great story like that? Why am I looking to outside sources to show me what a great story is? Like, I'm going to make my own great story. And so, I mean, circling that back around to shame, like shame is so not, it's so unproductive, right? Like, what are we why are we wasting so much time being ashamed of who we are instead of taking that same energy and spending that same time making choices so that 
we have a great story, something that we're proud of. And it, it, it's like in this world of social media, which of course we're taking advantage of right now with this podcast, um, it can be great, but it can also be really bad because the wrong images of what we're striving for, the wrong images are out there. And our great story doesn't have to be anything that like, you know, makes us famous in the world's eyes. It can just be our little inner circle, something of a life that we're proud of. Um, I kind of just, that was just kind of a tangent all over the place, but. No, but listen, we, we, we <laughs> talked about, we talked about the need to tell the story while we're alive. Yeah. Because if we squander that chance, we squander that opportunity to tell that story from our first person point of view. Yeah. We're leaving it to the rest of the world to tell it for us. And, and who better to control that narrative, right, than out of your own mouth? This is who I am. This is, this is, you know, lock, stock, and barrel. This is everything that I am, everything that I aspire to be. I may have fallen short. Yeah, but I gave it my best, but blah, 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 blah. But if we don't do that because we most often claim we don't have the right words than someone else. We're relinquishing that. Well, and I, you know, I think, so this, you're, you're reminding me of the story I told you the other day about um, the, the girl that I grew up with telling a mutual high school friend that I was troubled. Do you remember me telling you that story? Yes, of course. And I, I, there's a part of me that hates that that story stuck with me because that this person has had no significance in my life since like sophomore year in high school, right? So their opinions should not matter to me at all. And I know that. But when my friend told me that story that he had been at this wedding reception and in a circle of peers, somehow my name had come up. I don't recall why, but she had said, oh, Jennifer Fox, she is so troubled. And my friend defended me in the moment, but when he told me the story, it just sat with me like, who is this person that doesn't even know me anymore? Like literally has not had a seat at my table in decades. Mm -hmm. What does she think she knows that makes my life troubled? And when he first told me, I'm, let's say it was eight years ago, I don't really remember exactly what it was, but it, it really bothered me. And now looking back, I, I can see that it bothered me it affected me negatively because I was living in shame of my own life to a degree. And I, there was probably a part of me that thought, what does she know? Right? Like I'm so good at, I'm so good at faking it. I'm so good at pretending on paper. My life looks amazing. What does she know that makes her think my life is troubled? So perhaps it bothered me so much because down deep, I knew that I was, feeling a little troubled but mm -hmm. how did this person know that because I certainly wasn't showing that to the world so looking back on that now and remembering that that has been like a silent bit of fuel that that has driven me to where I am now of like living a life I'm super proud of I'm the furthest thing from troubled and thinking I'm I'm so grateful for this you know, person that has no role in my life, but that 
that idea that somebody else was talking about me and telling my story in a way that boiled everything I am down to me being troubled, man, that, that was not okay with me. So I love the idea now that I do get to tell my story and as dirty and messy and ugly as parts of it are, I'm super proud of who I am and everything I've been through and where it's brought me today. And now on this, you know, present day journey I'm on of living my life so that it is the best possible story I can make it. Um, in, in doing that and realizing that my comfort in talking about my story is inspiring somebody else to live theirs is so powerful. I can't even tell you. It drives me. I mean, yeah. I think about my life and everything that I'm doing, right? And I get a paycheck every Friday. I have bills to pay like everybody else. I have a job. And my job in vending is, an, you know, vending's not all that exciting and inspiring in and of itself. But realizing that my life is so much more than that and that just in me telling my story, just my, just me, just one person, being willing instead of living in some shame because there are certainly parts of my story that are troubling and there are times in my life when I have been troubled, but that's not my whole story. And instead of letting comments like that and letting the idea that my, that my story isn't perfect and it's ugly in places, instead of letting that make me live in shame and, and quiet and keeping all of that inside, I've taken all of that pain and sorrow and hurt and hard things and I've just embraced it to help, I mean, to make me stronger and a person that I'm proud of and, and then sharing it so that other people can take a minute to stop and say, yeah, what kind of story am I living? What kind of story am I telling by my day-to-day -day actions? What kind of story do I want to be told when I'm gone? You know, I don't know if I, I don't know if a lot of people even stop to think about that, right? Like, yeah, they don't stop to think I have control. I mean, we're so caught up in, geez, especially in this day and age, we're so caught up in blaming other people, outside factors, other things for why we are the way we are. And at the end of the day, like we all make choices in life and then we have to live with the consequences from those choices, you know? So, well said. yeah, I mean, and you know, I can't, I'm not going to take credit for those words because somebody said them to me once. And I, I, again, one of those never forget moments. It's an old friend. It was probably, I mean, I would have been in my mid twenties. So 20 years ago when she said this to me, it was the mother of a friend of mine and the father was a hardcore drinker. And, and not an aggressive, mean drunk, but a but an alcoholic, no doubt. And I don't know what sparked the conversation with this friend's mom, but I really liked this this friend's mom, this this old friend's mom, and there was something very spiritual about her, and I was drawn to that. So I I really liked getting into like meaningful conversations with her, and I I was not married at the time, but but at that point in my life, I mean, thinking back, I probably was feeling like that underlying pressure of that's the path I should be on. So I was very inquisitive with people in marriages and I was with her and she said that to me 
when I, she, cause she had shared with me that she was, that her marriage was not a good one. And, and then I remember, you know, as a, a woman in her mid twenties, feeling very empowered thinking, well, why are you staying in this marriage mm -hmm. if you're that unhappy? And she said that to me, she said, I'll never forget it. She said, we all make choices in life and you have to live with the consequences of those choices. And in the moment she said that to me, I remember feeling very sad for her. Like, wow, you, yeah, you chose this man and this life, but your kids are all grown. Like you certainly don't have to live in this unhappiness now. Um, I, I, yeah, that it, it shaped my mind in a way when she said that to me, because I remember thinking how powerful that she has chosen. She's choosing to stay in this marriage. She doesn't have to, but she's choosing to, and she's choosing to love this man for the reasons that she loves him and accept the things that she doesn't like because she made a commitment and a choice in marriage and God, even thinking about that sitting here now, my mind's yeah. trailing off on like, uh, you know, every, everything's not perfect. So you can't, when we make choices in life and, and marriage is a good one, because I'm now divorced, but you have to take the good with the bad in a lot of circumstances. And I would say in general, in life in general, right? Like life is not always roses. And so, yeah, the powerful words, but I can't take credit for them. And I remember oh, them being said to me, and I've thought about it a lot over 20 years. So I will jump fast forward to what you shared with me the last time we spoke. Running a 5K every month for a year. Yeah. That's <laughs> quite an objective. And I'm sure you're in the midst of filling that objective fulfilling it as part of your living your great story but something happened that brought you to making that objective right yeah it was a life that you once had maybe your your your, your fitness and how you were as a young woman to making that as a goal there's like a valley in in the middle of that. So let's talk I, about I'd love that. To hear that story. Well, talk you know, that story it's, about it's about uh, you now. Yeah, it's funny the running thing. Like, so the, my first memory of anything running related would be the Ridge Run in Beverly, which is the neighborhood I grew up in, and I was probably I'm gonna say ten years old, and it's a neighborhood thing. It, it happens every Memorial Day. And um, I was running in the Ridge Run and saw friends and they were going swimming at a friend's house. And I politely walked my 10-year-old ass off the running course and went swimming with my friends. And that day ended with the police looking for me and my mother thinking I was kidnapped because as a 10-year-old, it had not dawned on me that they'd be waiting for me at the finish line. So um, I have no idea, honest to God, where this I, this thing around running came from but in my mind there was something about being a runner that I always desired and it it certainly yes physical fitness was part of it but a much bigger part of it is running is hard 
right? I don't know if you're a runner, actually. I don't know if we ever talked about that, but it's, it's a hard thing to do and it's very easy to stop running. And it's often not because your lungs hurt and you can't breathe or your legs hurt and you can't physically run anymore. It's your brain that quits on you. It's your brain that says, this is hard. Stop doing it. Why are you doing this to me? So over the years, like I've never been a runner. In fact, I started on cross country in high school, my freshman year. And again, I was just not a natural runner or athlete. And the track coach, Mr. Eagle, he had a very strict rule that you could not go on vacation for spring break or you got kicked off the team. Mm -hmm. So once that spring break came around, and my mom found that out. She was like, well, you can't be on the track team because we go away as a family and we're not going to give up that time as a family because you'll be off in college, you know, yada, yada. Just, mm -hmm. And I remember being so grateful, like, oh, thank the Lord Jesus Christ, I can quit track because I hated it. And my mom was just somebody who always kind of made us be in a multitude of sports activities, extracurricular things that kept us busy. And I hated track. Again, not because I couldn't run, but because it was hard and my brain always quit on me when things got hard. So fast forward through adulthood, you know, I've run 5Ks for charities and what have you, never a serious runner. And I've never been able to run, run, run one without quitting. So without walking, without stopping in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of last year, after my self-proclaimed pity party, had to come to an end. Um, I decided that I was going to run a 5k every month for a year with the very simple goal of being able to run one without stopping. And I am somebody who's like always looking for the meaning in things and the symbolism of things. So to me, running a 5k without stopping was like symbolic of me learning how to not quit on myself. And that was piggybacked with this whole notion that I needed to get my drinking, my own drinking under control. And so I, it's funny to, to teach yourself to not quit running for a 5k in order to have the endurance to actually quit drinking. I mean, that's where that crazy idea, but that's where it came from is like, mm -hmm. I need to teach myself. I need to train myself to stop giving up when things get hard. And wow. so I, I signed up and the funny thing is all of these things I decided to do at the end of last year, I, I very likely did while buzzed up or drunk. So, <laughs> so I am quite confident that I signed up for the Turkey trot in Chicago last year while buzzed up one night. And, uh, I'm, I'm totally serious. I mean, I have a Peloton treadmill and that I ordered while drunk one night last year in May and woke up to the confirmation email, like, Holy shit, I just randomly yeah. spent $5,000 on the treadmill. But okay. Yeah. Your doorbell rings. Yeah. And, and you have a delivery for <laughs> yes. Jennifer Fox. Oh my God. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it's so, so I signed up for this 5K, just like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then the next morning, it was, uh, you know, feeling of dread like, what have I done? And then in my mind, it was, well, I mean, what's the worst case scenario? It's not like somebody's going to be chasing me with a flamethrower. I can stop and walk if I need to, whatever. It's a 5K. And I, so that was it. That was in my mind. That was my goal. So I went to the turkey trot. I actually took an Uber from my condo in Burridge, like by myself, 
Um, I'm so grateful that I'm not too shy because I asked some random person to take a picture of me before and after the race. Mm. And I, I ran the race. I ran that race. And I almost ran the whole thing without stopping. And I got to tell you, I probably quit at like 2.6 miles. Now, a 5K is only 3.1. So if that is not indicative of like my quitting personality, I ran 2.6 miles without stopping. And then I could not run another half mile. Like my brain couldn't do it. And I was so wrapped up in I'm not kidding in this. It's almost embarrassing to say out loud. I was so wrapped up in my mind, visualizing the glory I was going to feel crossing the line mm. on my favorite holiday, Thanksgiving a day that to be grateful um, that I lost touch of like the process. And that's so symbolic of my whole life is, you know, I just, I got lost in, how good it was going to feel to win, to be successful, to have conquered my goal on the first race that I completely lost touch with the fact that running's hard and I needed to focus on the here and now. And so I, I stopped, I walked, I was so disappointed in myself, but also grateful that I had done it. It felt good to finish it. And something was born that day. So I went home, I found my Jan, I found my December race and it was a new year's Eve race in Chicago. So obviously Chicago is cold in December and often snowy. And uh, I thought, well, how symbolic will that be? Because at that point I had already decided to turn my dry January, which I had done for several years into a dry 2020. So I decided I'm going to give up booze for the whole year, which is super scary. Um, but when I found this race on New Year's Eve, I thought how perfect, right? It's going to be the last day I have drinks for a whole new decade. Um, and I'm going to run a race on that day. And so, man, it was cold. It was, I definitely do not recommend that. I'll definitely be flying somewhere to run a December 5k next time. But yeah, it, so I ran that 5k. I mean, and then it just, yeah. So the challenge was born from that. Um, I found a 5k in San Antonio, Texas, random, just completely randomly for January and February, I mean, I, I went to a 5k race finder website and just kept the parameters open for anywhere and chose Texas completely randomly. But that turned out to be such a blessing too. So I did, I ran my first 5k race without stopping January of this year, which was awesome. Yeah, I know. That's, but that's here's, really here's the most hilarious thing. I, I kid you not. I almost quit. I almost started walking one block from that finish line. I, I kid you not. I could see I, that race was so hard. This random girl through the Rachel Hollis community that I had discovered, and we can talk about that at another, you know, some other point, but I had posted on this Rachel Hollis community that I was going to be running in San Antonio. And if anybody wanted to join me and this, this girl named Michelle said that she'd run with me. So this total stranger shows up for this random run that a church put on in San Antonio. I mean, talk about random. And mm -hmm. she was just a little faster than me. So having her in my sights the whole time in front of me kept me from stopping, right? I was like, okay, if I just follow her. It was so reminiscent. Like I had hiked to Machu Picchu several years ago. And I remember 
the on the really hard days where we were doing nothing but climbing up, I would just watch the, the our guide's feet. And I would just, in my mind, think, no matter how slow you go, don't stop. Just keep going. And so running that race, it was like, just don't stop, don't stop. And one block, I could see the finish line. And holy crap, I wanted to stop and walk so bad. It was so hard. And I didn't. And I crossed. And then I was kind of like, I wanted to cry. I felt like it should be this like momentous, emotional occasion. And it, it just was the start of what's been the best best year of my life for sure of my adult life congratulations thank that's, you that's... <laughs> thank you. Have, you have you ever equated this burning need to continue to run and not quit and you know several times you said i almost quit on yeah. these runs i almost and i'm so close to the finish line i almost quit and no matter what, just, you know, looking at the guy's feet and just, you know, you, you can't make a mistake as long as you keep on moving. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How symbolic is that to the years of drinking that maybe it never occurred to you that, you know, or even post after you've you've gone dry for so long and you've made that determination and now the urges are coming back. I think, you know, a lot of people that in your Facebook um, group that continue to thank you for being such a courageous storyteller are saying that because they draw a lot of inspiration and strength from you know, the words that you use and the experiences that you shared. I mean, it's so symbolic. Almost wanting to quit is, to me, feeling this strong urge to grab a drink when you've determined I'm beyond that already. Yeah. And it, the, that, that tug of war, that pull to suck you back in, right? One drink, Jennifer, is not going to kill you, right? That in the, those are the demons that just keep trying to pull you back in. But that's why your 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 resolve is in my in, in my mind. Hearing this, it's so admirable because you're so close to the finish, the finish line, ready to you know hoist your arms up in the air and say, I made it, I did it. Um, I, there, there's just, it's, it's just wrapped with symbolism. Well, me. so it, it is. And I, I think so. The thing that I've realized this time around, and I say this time around because I've, I've, you know, I've not drank in January for, like I said, I've done dry January for several years before thought about what life would be like not drinking for so many more years before that even. Um, and one thing I've really come to realize is that you don't ever get to stop choosing. So, you know, you say finish line and there isn't a finish line. And I think that's the key is that so many times in my life, I've gotten really excited about something or passionate about something.
Oh, there you are. Okay, sorry. My other line yeah, rang. Okay. Um, and then as, you know, as convicted as I've been about things, I quit. I give up on them. I give up on the mm -hmm. idea. I don't keep moving forward. I don't keep trying. When it gets hard, I stop. And so for me, I can see I the drinking was me numbing myself. I never felt that in the moment. All the sobriety groups I followed for many years while I was still drinking, I would read other people's stories and think about my why. Why do I drink so much? Why do I drink so frequently? I couldn't see it until I was on the other side of it. So the, the quitting on myself is like so many of us, I think we get excited about something, but then we think it's supposed to be at some point, it's supposed to be easy, right? Like, look at the, think about, we talked about this the other day, think about the, the diet fad, you know, there's a quick fix. I cannot tell you how many people have said to me this year, wow, you've lost a lot of weight. What's your secret? It's namely women. Lots and lots mm -hmm, of women mm -hmm. tell me that. And I always say, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I quit booze and I started running. And they always look at me with this deflated look like, wah, wah, wah. That's not what I wanted to hear. But, <laughs> right. You know, because okay, both one those things are worse. hard to quit. And, and two, the other alternative is painful. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. It's work. It's work. And right. so even when I was married, I would read stuff about marriage and good relationships and all that stuff. And it's like, you have to choose your partner over and over and over again, because there's going to be days when you just really don't like them. Um, I think if we can look at our life like that from through that lens and say every single day you have to make choices. And sometimes that's exhausting. So this year, more than ever before, what sobriety has given me is the clarity to see things from a perspective that I can embrace them as like, okay, this is what this looks like. If I want to be happy and calm and peaceful and fit and healthy, all of those things, that is not going to be possible if I'm drinking. So very quickly or quickly, it became my quitting drinking, my eliminating alcohol from my life became something of addition instead of deprivation. It wasn't anymore, I can't drink because I'm a grown ass woman and I can drink right now. I can go pop open a drink. You know, I've got beer in my fridge for friends and, but that it's, I've added all of these wonderful things to my life. And if I want that, if I want this life that I have, where I say at almost 47 years old, I've never been happier or healthier or in better shape, I can't drink. Because if I drink, even if you boil it down to being hungover, if I drink, I'm not going to feel good. Physically, I won't be able to maintain this lifestyle. So pretty much every day now, I run. And when mm -hmm. I run, almost every single time, I run at least a 5K distance. So I went from running a 5K race every month for a year to teach myself to stop quitting and giving up when it, things got hard to running that distance just for kicks because I enjoy it. And so um, that, t I, I'm, I gotta loop myself around here. That to me is, it's not the, the distance once you're doing it, you realize so many people run 5Ks 
for like so many people run way longer, way further every day or multiple times a week. It's like not that big of a deal once you're in that world. But I could easily stop making these really positive choices and quit doing that and go back to the life I had. The life I had was, was, I mean, I could say easier in some respects, but it, in reality, it wasn't, it was harder. My lack of making hard choices, my lack of work, my laziness, my mental laziness pre 2020, um, wasn't as, wasn't as, uh, what would be the word I'm looking for? I feel like now today I make conscious, regular conscious choices and I'm always faced with them. So it's not always boiling down to me having an urge to drink necessarily, but there's always choices, right? I could sit on the couch and binge on Yellowstone, the, the series Yellowstone and not go run. I could do any number of things that would be unproductive, but really enjoyable. But then I would not have this life and th those paths would lead to the life I was living, which was one of lethargy and laziness and one that were that wasn't healthy at all. And so, I mean, the drinking definitely comes into all of that. But there are plenty of people that don't have issues with drinking alcohol, but they have issues with something else, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all were, we've been brainwashed into believing that life is supposed to be easy or life is supposed to be easier. And the hard part of life doesn't have to be negative. Like I, there is now enjoyment in the work I do every day to have this life. And even though it's conscious all the time, I'm consciously having to make positive choices. They all lead to the same really happy, healthy place. And, and I think that's the key. Yeah. I think that's the key that, Hey, you know, we're, we're constantly hiding behind these masks. So much and, so, so much so. And, and, and until we start to peel it off slowly and, and look, we know what's available out there and making these very difficult choices when you have so many voices in your head pulling you in one direction and you want to go in another. Oh my God, it's so easy. It, it doesn't even have to be other voices in your head. I mean, just yesterday I was coming, or was it yesterday or Thursday? What, either, um, it was Thursday. I was coming home and my neighbor Tina and her husband were pulling out of the garage at the same time. And she rolled her window down and said, hey, we're going to Capri and Willow Springs. Would you like to join us? And I was on the phone with a friend at the time. And I said to my neighbor, no, that's okay. I got to get a run in. And then she, I said, text me when you get home. And then I rolled my window up and went to pull into my garage and said to my friend that was on the phone, the old me would have said, yeah, for sure. The old me would have 100% been on that horse to Capri and Willow Springs to drink and eat dinner. Yeah, because you could always run tomorrow. Exactly. Or you could always run when I get up yeah. or, or whatever. And when you live right. with that, when you live with that with when you when you live without making choices all the time you constantly get pulled into a direction that might not might not be productive for your end goal and so for me it was it was like a moment that I caught myself where I was proud where I thought 
wow, the old me would have done X. Even, even the old me take alcohol out of the equation. The old me would have gone out to eat. And this is me prioritizing, making a choice that I need to run today. And I want, not even that I need to, because anybody's making me or because there's still a number on the scale I'm trying to reach or anything, because I want to, because I know that's something that's important in my life and it's a priority. And so I think, you know, like you said at the very beginning of this, we could spend four hours because there's so many avenues we could go down with this. And priorities, it's really, when we all have the same 24 hours, what are your priorities going to be? If you have a list of priorities, then you constantly have to make choices to keep those priorities in your top five, top 10 list of things that are important. And the minute you take your eye off the ball, the minute you stop making conscious choices, other things come in the way and your priorities all of a sudden get bumped down, bumped down, bumped down. And now the first five, 10 things you're doing every day in life don't even correlate with the things that used to be important to you. You know, so if you're not always engaged, actively engaged and conscious of the choices that you're making, it's so easy for your life to just slip out of your hands. So where I find myself today is recognizing that for my adult life, I have gotten to a certain, a certain stage. So if you want to take the 5K as the symbol, I've gotten to 2.6 miles and I thought, and excuse my language, but I don't think I've dropped any F-bombs today and my friends would be very disappointed. So I've gotten to that 2.6 miles and said, fuck it. And, you know, gone back to the easy way. And where I'm at now, taking alcohol out of my life has given me the power and the ability to not say fuck it anymore. And so for me, the risk of going back to drinking is very simple. It's that I know that if I were to go back to a life where I drank, my fuck it button would constantly be an option. And without alcohol, I just don't, I don't get to that point anymore. Like I, I'm always have clarity to make the right decision that aligns with my priorities. It's awesome. I mean, I, yeah, I could go on and on about that alone because I think if people could just take a minute Whatever your priorities are, it could have nothing to do with alcohol, but there is something that is clouding your path to your end goal, what you want for your life. So be that drugs or alcohol or be that something else, there is something clouding your vision to that goal. And if you just extract that thing that makes your path so much clearer, like for me, it's a no brainer now. I'm like, well, I know what my life will look like if I start drinking again. It'll make it harder for me to see the right choice. And so it's just an easy choice at that point. You know, it's no longer about a physical craving or a desire to drink or a desire to numb. It is just a desire to have this life that is this person talking to you on this podcast today. And I don't want to go back to the person that I was last year or the year before or the decade before. beautiful as that person was in a lot of ways well I mean she was there were things that made her troubled and Mm -hmm. probably what bothered me most about knowing that somebody said that about me is that it was true there was part of my life that was troubled and and that was something that now I know 
was a narrative that I could control. And I'm doing a real good job of that now, which is exciting. It is so, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting when you realize you have control. Yeah, yeah. Making that conscious decision. Yep. Right? Yep. Could you have gotten to this point without forgiveness? No. Without forgiving you? No, yeah, no, no. And it is, you are spot on when you say that you have to forgive yourself first. And that is a concept that seems, um, I don't even know what word I would use, but I thought about it in years past and thought, I don't, I, what do I need to forgive myself for? I'm, I'm so transparent and open about my story and I'm, very self-aware and very introspective, but it's been in this year that I have really been able to recognize how hard I've been on myself in times when I shouldn't have been. Um, there's So there's a lot of forgiveness of myself for not knowing better to be better earlier. Um, but then there's also forgiveness of you know, people in my, my mother, my mother would be a big one. I didn't find that until after she had died, but I now recognize through my own journey to sobriety that she did absolutely do the best that she could with what she had in the time that she had it. And I have a hundred percent forgiven her for her shortcomings in being a mom Um, because addiction creates a real ugly monster inside of you. And she was not always a great mom to me in adulthood. But I, now that I've been able to recognize my own shortcomings with my own addiction, Mm -hmm. I can, if I, if you can forgive yourself, you know, you, you can forgive other people. I mean, and you have to do both. You have to do both. You have to do both. And that's, that's, and that's where I was going in all this. Forgiving of oneself is one aspect, but you know, we're, as human beings, we feel like we've always been wrong. We're the ones that have been wrong. And so, you know, you're, you're the mom. Uh, you should set the example. You didn't set that example. And now my life is this. And, and you can just play that out in your head. Right? Yeah. But to, to openly say you did the best that you could, I don't know if I could have done it at that same time in your day. Yeah. Given what you had, forgiveness is a two-way street. Yeah. And I there's a part of me that does wish that I would have been able to tell her that when she was alive. Um, But again, going back to a a root rule for myself of no regret, because you cannot change the past. So regret is the most useless emotion. Mm -hmm. I talk to her in my mind now, you know, and I, I was able to spend the last couple of weeks with her before she died. I actually was holding her hand when she took her last breath. And I know she knew. 
Do you know what I mean? I, I have, there's peace yeah. in my heart that she's proud of me today. And I think it's in my, um, my making sure that, that my story is a good positive one and that I've made the necessary changes in my own life to honor her. That is um, where I've been able to forgive myself for the poor way that I treated her when she was alive. And I know that she, my mother was one of the most forgiving people on the planet. Honestly, she was. And um, so I, I, there's a lot of peace in knowing that I'm living a life. I'm a person that she would be proud of that I'm probably living a life that she desperately wanted for herself when she was my age. I'm proud of you. Yeah. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I can't let you go. Okay. <laughs> I cannot let you go until you talk to me and share this new coffee product that we talked about, Dragonolia. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exciting. So that's what I'm really passionate about. So it's really exciting when you can bring something full circle and have that like, aha, you know? And again, I, I totally attribute my ability to do that to being sober this year and being able to really see clearly. It's, it's fairly astounding how much of a fog I was living in before that I didn't even recognize um, because I, on paper, like I said, my life looked great. And anybody who knew me, I mean, countless people have said, well, you didn't drink that much or you didn't have that much of a problem or, you know, they, they were just surprised by where I'm at right now. And so when I found the live a great story campaign or it found me, or it's probably more appropriate to say, um, that was so that I could send out a thank you letter to everybody who attended my brother's services. And I sent that letter with a live a great story sticker. And it was just imploring people to live a great story because Justin didn't get a chance to live his. And then soon after I started this dry 2020 quest. And then soon after that, somebody that I had become friends with in a sobriety group suggested that we create our own sobriety group for 2020. And so I did that. It's called dry 2020 honey because Justin used to call me honey bunny all the time. Um, and then from that, I started with the running and then I started in a group called running motivation group on Facebook. So you see all this is all tied together. I mean, it's just crazy how it's all linked, but in that running motivation group, I saw a guy named Glenn Harrington post something about his running journey and he had been a heroin addict and he's recovered and is now married with two children and his words in that post were beautifully written and I really wanted to share it in my sobriety group on Facebook, but I didn't want to copy and paste his words without his permission, even though I could have. Um, so I private messaged him and I gave him, believe it or not, since we've established that I'm not short winded, but I gave him like a footnote version of my story and then asked if he'd be okay if I shared his post and he came back right away and said, mm -hmm. I would, um, yes, of course you can share my post. And then for whatever reason, he said, but I think you'd be really interested in this organization called Heron Project. I want to connect you with my friend, Pam. Um, I forget her actual title, but let's call her community director. Um, I want to connect you with her because I think you might be really interested in this group. And so then I 
looked at Heron Project online and then emailed this Pam. And this was all late at night at my office. She emailed me back right away. And so there was born this relationship between me and my journey and Heron Project, which is a substance abuse disorder community, non-for-profit organization um, that was developed by an ex-NBA player. His name is Chris Heron. And heroin addiction actually derailed his his career and almost killed him. So their entire organization is to help people like my brother, but also to help family members of addicts because they need help too. And their organization is rooted in health and wellness. So it was all just really, you know, surrounding my story of quitting drinking and starting running and, and all of that. So in doing that, Obviously, like I said earlier, I have a career, right? And that's running my family vending and coffee service business and, and doing it for 20 years. This is my career. It's my path. I, I'm almost 47 years old. I love what I do. I'm proud of having 29 employees and supporting them and their families and all that good stuff. So it, during a visit to my coffee roaster, actually, um, they in talking about redesigning my private label coffee bag, the owner of this coffee roasting facility pointed out another non-for-profit that had a, you know, it was like a palette of their product. He pointed it out and then he said, Hey, maybe we can do something with your redesign that aligns itself with your 2020 thing, you know? And it was a light bulb. It was a light bulb moment. I remember standing in the warehouse downstate Illinois at this coffee roaster facility thinking, that's it. That's it. That's how I could tie this all full circle. I could bring this all back to what I do for a living in honor of my mom and my brother because they live with so much shame about their addiction. And I can do something good to give back so that even though I can't bring them back, I can contribute to trying to help somebody else so they can live a great story. So from that idea, I reached out to this Pam from Heron Project. I reached out, I I emailed the Live a Great Story. I didn't even know who it was at the time. I just emailed them Mm -hmm. through their website. It turns out it's this guy named Zach. He actually lives in Austin alongside you. And he started this campaign for his whole, you know, his own personal journey story. But I reached out to him at the beginning of this year He was intrigued. I'm sure he also probably thought I was a little crazy. And I, because I love to get on a plane and travel anywhere for any reason, I was like, well, my cousin lives in Austin and I'm doing this 5K thing and I'm going to find a race in Austin and I'm going to come down. I found this race and COVID had just kind of started, but things weren't locking down yet. And so I said, would you be interested in getting together and, and meeting with me? I'd love to talk to you about this idea I have. And he was kind of like, yeah, sure. Okay. He didn't even respond to me right away. <laughs> Who was this crazy woman? I'm, I'm totally sure he was like, whatever. Um, but, and he didn't answer me right away either. And I was a little disgruntled, like, what is wrong with people not answering in a timelier fashion? And so he finally did get back to me and we Zoom chatted. And I, you know, it's funny now that I've met him in person, it just, it's his personality. But I remember in the Zoom meeting thinking, he thinks I'm crazy. Um, but I did, I got on a plane, went down to that 5k, which would be the last live race I ran because then COVID really hit until July when I found the one in Estes. But 
I met with him face to face and we just really exchanged kind of this kind of conversation, you know, exciting ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think he was just nodding his head thinking, okay, whatever you say, like this isn't, there's no intention to make money by taking his live a great story symbol. There's no intention of, you know, selling apparel or anything like that. It was just, I want to implore people to live a great story. It's just a concept. And I'm marrying that idea with Heron Project because then I I had a Zoom meeting with their board and I said, you know, I can I can include your your logos on my package, quite literally, and give back to Heron Project in my mom and brother's name as a way to honor their lives. And I can do it so it's not just me living a good story, Mm -hmm. but now I can pass this message along, be it to people who have their own addictive, you know, with substance abuse, or like you said at the beginning, any other addiction that you might have that's holding you back from living a great story. How exciting. 100%. We can marry all this together. So the dragonolia comes from the dragonfly being a symbol for my brother. And the nolia comes from the magnolia tree that I sat under in the backyard of my childhood home with my mom, even through all of those really hard adult years with her, she would still call me every spring to tell me it was in bloom. And if you know anything about the magnolia tree and Chicago is very windy, the blooms don't last for very long. So when she'd call me, it would be like, hey, the tree is blooming. You better get out here to come see it because you never know how long it's going to be in bloom. And that was always just a symbol for my relationship with her. So Dragonolia is born from that. It's marrying those two things, which are my mom and my brother. And that coffee is going to be something we, you know, we're going to sell this whole bean delicious coffee under that brand name and money from each bag of coffee we sell is going to go to Heron Project to help other people hopefully live their great story. I'm so excited that I feel like... You know, when I think about it, I tell people the story and even my dad, I mean, my dad's going to be 82 at the end of this month. Right. And so he doesn't really know what I'm doing with this and uh, I'll tell him the story and I'll get super excited about it. And he'll kind of look at me like, okay, you know, sure. Whatever you say, Jennifer. And the story of my life has been me getting really excited about stuff and nobody else understanding and then me quitting. At me having my 2.6 mile fuck it moment mm. and saying, forget it. <laughs> and now in my own sobriety and in my own quest to live a great story for however long I have left, it's, this is it. This is it. It took me this long to figure yeah. out. And it's that if I can inspire somebody to stop living in shame, to stop being, you know, living in their addiction, to stop not living a great story, to stop making bad choices, to stop not forgiving people, to stop being unhappy. If I can inspire just one person to take hold of their life and realize that it's their choices and their choices alone that have them exactly where they are. And if I can do that through what I do every day to make a living, I mean, it's like it all came together for me in this aha, this is it. It's like my mom and my brother live in me every day in this ability to, through what I do to make a living, to give back as well in their honor. It's like so 
it was it's such a meant to be thing for me i mean obviously yeah. time will tell because we're in the very beginning infancy stages of this but i don't know if you've ever had a visceral gut instinct before about something but that's the only way i can explain it and and it is a it is tangible to me like i can feel that this was meant to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. It was supposed to take me this long to figure out my own life. It was supposed to lead me right here so that I can help somebody else have their aha moment. And to Jennifer, be able to do that is, through coffee is so, it yeah. seems crazy, but it's, 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 it's so yeah. exciting. Listen, listen, it's your story in every packet sold. Yes. Yeah, and it's a chance for you to tell that story, and so uh, you you, you kind of answered the question that I had in my mind about interested people that are looking to track your progress and see where this product is. How do they get information about it? If somebody had ideas that they wanted to, you know, put in front of you to help with distribution or whatever, how do they, you know, how do they get a hold of you? How do they get in touch with you? So, um, so right now, um, because it's in such the infancy stages, you would, you know, you could go to our website, which is foxvending.com, fox, like the animal, I always tell people, 1x. Um, there is a going to be a page and dragonolia.com spelled just like it sounds dragon, the word dragon, and then O L I A um, mm -hmm. that's being built and developed right now. And so you'll be able to go to our Fox vending page to buy the coffee. You'll ultimately be able to find us at dragonolia.com as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, the sky's the limit to me. And yeah. I think the sky's the limit in life, right? Like, you can decide what you want to do with your life and then spend every single day taking steps to get there with the idea that the beauty is in the journey, that the beauty is not the, the end, the finish line. Like there isn't a finish line in your life. So you get to every single day, make choices to get you closer to this end goal. And then once you reach that end goal, like you get, further what's the next end goal how can you make that bigger so if you want to boil it down to running 5k's now are my five day a week daily exercise or six days a week so my next goal is the half marathon my next goal after that mm -hmm. so many years I mean they wanted this is a little bit off a tangent but when I was 20 years old I had a lower back issue from gymnastics and they wanted to bracket my spine I there were days I could not get out of bed and I remember at the time meeting with this orthopedic and saying, no way. I had just picked up golf again. And I thought, there's no way. Unless I'm crawling and I literally cannot get up off the floor, you are not bracketing my spine. I will figure it out. And mm -hmm. um, so for much of my adult life, in my mind, I thought, I don't think I could physically run a marathon. I don't think I could do it. And now this many years into my adult life, I'm like, oh, I'm doing that. If I had to crawl across that finish line, I'm going to do that. So the beauty is in the journey. And you, you have every bit of control over what your story is going to be. 
Um, I don't, like I said, that was kind of a tangent, but. And, and, and the outcome, I will leave you with this little gift of a quote. I didn't make it up. Emily Dickinson did. Okay. And it's very simple. I dwell in possibility. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it is. That's I, you. Yep. That's you in this 85 minute conversation so far that we've had. And we haven't even scratched the surface. I know. <laughs> because I still need to talk about your dedication to sleep. Believe it or not, it is so important. It is. Right? Yeah. Getting good sleep, getting support. Um, with, with, with friends and online support groups, local support groups, right? Yeah, um, we could talk for How hours. to overcome these urges, changing your environment, tossing out the stuff that, that tempts you to go the other way when you've decided to go one way. And you right? know, the emotional health, all of that. Yeah, the urges, Having, it's yeah. funny, with the, the urges, you know, when I hear ta- people talk about cravings, I think, I don't have cravings. I have moments of familiarity. I have moments where I'm like, oh, this is when I would have been drinking. I remember that this is when I would have grabbed a drink. This is when I would have opened a bottle. This is when. So I never treat them as cravings. I stop them at moments of familiarity. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, there's a lot of power in that when you don't give it you don't say it's a craving that's nagging at me, that's pulling me to do something. Nope. It's just a memory. It's just a familiarity. You've changed that story now. Wow. I would definitely invite you back. <laughs> for, I would love to come back. two to four. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. I would love that. This has been great. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And if Neil is building out those pages for your for your website, it's it it's gonna be world class. He's I a great guy. And, yep. Yeah, yeah. And you know the the collaboration that we're thinking of doing is just it's it's almost like this. This is, you know, everything that I've done uh, to this point in my life has almost, you know, our our lives have almost intersected on the creative um, side and we talk nonstop and, and, you know, he's from New Zealand and my sister currently lives in Christchurch, New Zealand. So we have that to talk about, you know, it's such a small world. It is such a small world. It (laughs) certainly is. And I, you know, when I went to school for graphic design and I have an artist heart, I, I always wondered how I would tie that in. I never, I felt like I didn't want it to be my job because then it would just be my job, right? And I loved mm-hmm. art in a in a more um, social butterfly, beautiful, life is beautiful kind of way, not a I need to do this to earn a paycheck kind of way. And so it's interesting just how now like my life has gone back to the artistic and creative and I've been able to lace that into my what's been my job. So it's it has ignited a passion in me about what I do work-wise. I mean, I'm very open about my life with employees, about my journey. I've kept my door open for them to, you know, talk to me. That's a very fine line to work when you run a business in, you know, keeping a professional life while still caring about your employees. And I feel like that part of my personality lends itself really well to being the best leader I can be. Um, It's, 
it's incredible. It's incredible. I'm even sitting here talking to you, honestly. Once I get off the phone, I'm sure I'll probably just stare at the floor for several minutes and see what just happens. Yeah, what just happened? That's right. And I'm coming to Austin and we're going to meet in person. That's for sure. Screw yeah, COVID. And anyway. I won't be like the live a great story. I will, dude, I will respond right away. Well, you know what? I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to tell you what with the, you know, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me privately because mm-hmm. I started sharing my sobriety journey on my, my face, my normal Facebook page and not just in my sobriety group that I created. And I can't tell you the number of people that have reached out to me privately to share their own personal struggle. And that has been an honor, first of all, that people would trust me enough to, to open up about some real private stuff. But it also tells me that there is this whole world that people aren't talking about because when you talk about drinking, it's either you're an addict and you have a problem or you're not. There's no gray area when people talk about it, right? So yes. I, I told you this when you and I talked the other day, my partner said to me when I decided to make 2020 a dry year he said well you're not gonna tell people you're quitting for the whole year are you and I was like yeah why wouldn't I and he said well because people are gonna think you're gonna you have a problem and I go well I do have a problem I drink a bottle of wine a day I would think on anybody's measure that would be a problem but it was like I realized that that people there's so much shame in it that nobody talks about it. And it's been so normalized in our society that you're either an addict or you are not. I mean, there's no middle ground. And there is a huge gray area here. There is a, mm. there is a, it's perfectly fine to say, I don't have a problem drinking, but maybe my life would be better if I just didn't do it, you know? So for me, I don't feel like I don't. Now this is just me. I mean, AA has certainly worked for friends of mine. AA has failed members of members of my family, but for me, it's like it doesn't need to be about. Very quickly, it became about something so much more than I'm not drinking because it's a problem that I drink a bottle of wine every day. It is a problem. That was for sure a problem. But it's like I am not. I'm not worried about what after 2020 is going to bring. Because like I said earlier, I'm choosing this big, beautiful, diverse, multifaceted life and alcohol just doesn't fit there anymore. So it's not about me having a problem with drinking. It's about I'm living my life and it just wouldn't be this great if I drank. That is, if we could send that message out and empower more people to not have to hit a rock bottom with drinking before they said, you know, maybe drinking's just not a good idea. Maybe it's just not mm-hmm. for me. I mean, think about that. Yeah. And I can tell you based on purely the number of people that have reached out to me privately that it is a problem that's not being talked about and that I'm stirring something by talking about it. I'm stirring something in people to go, hmm, what would my life look like if I didn't drink? That's awesome. That's very awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really exciting. We're starting a Jennifer, movement, Cecil. Yeah, <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much. Let's put a period there, All right. but it's definitely not a firm period. I got How's it. That? that sounds I'd great. I'd love to have you back. I would love to come back. Thanks. So let me close it by saying this. I learned a lot about not only um, what was shared here today. I'll tell you something from my own experience. 
it's possible if you know how much damage this causes you or your relationships or work, et cetera, then you'll put the effort in to stop hurting yourself in this way. And, and, and I think that is such a loving thing to do yeah. for you. Yep. Yep. You got to love yourself first. To, right. Thank you again. Thank you. I, I appreciate it so much. And that's it for the resilience podcast. I'm Cecil Ledesma with Jennifer Fox this morning, this afternoon. It's Saturday and we're doing this and we're recording. (laughs) I am very grateful. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I'll talk to you again next week. Take care of yourself. Hey, I'll see you next time, and thank you so much for tuning in. That about wraps it up. But before you jump off, two quick things, actually uh, three. One, I've always wanted to author the conversation on resilience and mental health because as a very proud Navy father, these topics affect me personally. And as you go about your day, be sensitive and be kind always for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you probably know nothing about. Your life is a gift and it's precious to me. And thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we can have a conversation is amazing. I feel very honored to be in your ears right now and that you spend a portion of your morning, noon, or night with me. And whether this is the first podcast you've listened to or you've been a loyal listener, I just want to say thank you. And last, please, I would be honored if you checked out my website at CecilLedesma.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter at CecilLedesma. Peace.